My message this morning is basic and central to the Christian faith, and I invite you to come with me to John's Gospel, chapter 19. John's Gospel, chapter 19, and verse 30, words that you may be familiar with. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the last but one statement by the Lord Jesus as he hung on the cross in agony as he was dying for sinners like us. Here he speaks one word in the original, finished, accomplished, done. It's a word of victory, of triumph, And according to other Gospels, he speaks this word loudly. The Lord wants all people to hear. He wants the crowds to hear, his enemies, wants the disciples to hear, the women. And I think he wanted heaven to hear this cry of finish because he'd come from heaven. He's God the Son, sent by God the Father on this rescue mission to die for us. And to achieve this dreadful task of taking our punishment. And he now wants heaven to hear, finished. And it's right for us all, believers and unbelievers, to hear this word this morning. Our Lord has been hanging on the cross for nine hours under the intense heat of the sun, with the weight of his body leaning heavily on the nails in his hands and his feet. He really was in agony, physically. And before shouting out, finished, he said, I thirst. You may recall that nine hours earlier when he arrived at Golgotha, before placed on the cross, he was offered a sedative drink, which he refused. He wanted to be conscious. He wanted to lay down his life consciously, for us. But now he cries, I thirst. And so he's given a cheap sour wine, not a sedative, and on a sponge it wets his lips and his mouth to refresh him. And then, summing what physical energy he had, he cries out loudly, finished. Maybe you are searching for God this morning. Maybe you are guilty, aware of it. Maybe you're ashamed of your past. Maybe you really want to know God, to know his forgiveness. Maybe someone here or online may be afraid to die and to meet God at death as judge. Well, here is the answer to our fears and our need. Jesus shouted out triumphantly, finished. And we need to ask ourselves, what is our Lord saying to us today? Well, first of all, he's saying that he accomplished what God the Father sent him to do. He's done it. While hanging on the cross, the crowds spat in the face of the Lord Jesus. They laughed. They mocked him. 
they ridiculed. Remember how they said, you saved others, and he had saved others. He healed many people. He forgave sinners. He raised the dead, and he raised Lazarus recently. And so they shouted, you saved others, but yourself you cannot save. To them, they imagined that he was a helpless victim of circumstances. He could have come down from the cross, as we'll see. And yet, that was not God's plan. He stayed on the cross. He was to die for our sin. The evening before he was crucified, you may remember that our Lord Jesus went with disciples into the Garden of Gethsemane. He there saw the awful suffering ahead of him. Matthew in his Gospel uses the word translated in English as began and uses that word three times and strategically. In Matthew chapter 4, he tells us that Jesus began to preach. And that's what he did for three years. In Matthew 16, he tells us after Peter's confession that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Matthew tells us that Jesus began to tell his disciples that he must suffer many things, that he must be crucified, and that he'll be raised again. And now, as the Lord Jesus enters this private garden of Gethsemane, a garden he visited often for privacy, for prayer, for fellowship with the Father, as he entered the garden of Gethsemane, Matthew says, pointedly, he became exceedingly sorrowful. He began to be exceedingly sorrowful. It was like a tidal wave coming over him, overwhelming him. Sadness, sorrow, awareness of what was going to happen in a few hours' time. And in the garden, he prays that memorable prayer, Father, let this cup pass from me. This cup of suffering, this cup involving Calvary, dying in the place of sinners with all the anguish involved. Let it pass from me. Yet not my will, but your will constantly be done. So there is a plan, the Father's plan. The Father has sent him, the Father has anointed him, and on the cross the Father will actually smite his own son and lay on him the iniquity of us all. After our Lord finished praying, there was the visit by the temple police and the Roman soldiers and the mob. And one of the disciples of our Lord cut off the ear of one of their servants. Our Lord rebukes him, put away your sword. And then makes that powerful statement, I can call to heaven for legions of angels. He's God the Son. He's also perfect man. Heaven is at his command. He's not helpless. He's there willingly and lovingly 
And he could call heaven to send legions of angels and destroy his enemies. But that wasn't God's plan. The plan is that he stays and goes to the cross and dies in our place. Weeks later, after our Lord rose from the dead and ascended to heaven, sent his spirit upon the apostles, you may remember that Peter, in his first recorded sermon, tells the crowds, you have taken Jesus by wicked hands. Your fault is your sin, your hatred of Jesus. You crucified him. You put him to death. Their responsibility, their sin. And yet, says Peter, God raised him up. And then Peter adds, him, that is Jesus, being delivered by the determinate purpose and foreknowledge of God, it's a plan. God didn't make the people sin and crucify the Lord Jesus. They were responsible. But God using sin and hatred of the Messiah to bring about his glorious plan to redeem us as sinners. The Apostle Peter, in his first letter in the first chapter, he's urging Christians to be obedient, to honour the Father in their lives. He reminds them that they've been redeemed by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And then he adds these interesting words, who was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Speaks of a plan by God the Father in eternity, before creation, before Adam's sin. The Lord Jesus Christ appointed by the Father. He is to be the mediator. And in the Old Testament scripture, he'll be the surety and the elect are given to the Lord Jesus Christ in eternity. The Lord Jesus Christ will care for them. He will come for them. He will die for them. He will purchase their salvation. God's plan, long before the sin of Adam, the greatest tragedy in the history of the world, when Adam and Eve sinned, plunging humanity into sin and darkness, separated us from God. Death then invades the world which God had made. There's this harmony in nature. And we're all caught up in sin. Not just the sin of Adam, but our own personal sin by choice. And so God had a plan, and still has a plan, that the Lord Jesus Christ would die for his people. And here on the cross, as he dies, he shouts out, finished, Father, I've done what you sent me to do. It's, it's finished. A note of victory. But secondly, notice that the Lord Jesus Christ is saying he's fulfilled the promises, the shadows, the types of the Old Testament scripture, which were there in the Old Testament over the centuries. I recall as a very young Christian visiting 
a few Christian homes. And the elderly couple I'm thinking of now had a box on the kitchen table. And on one day she brought it to me and said, this is a promise box. I don't know if the older people remember such a box. A small square box packed with pieces of paper rolled up. And on each piece of paper would be a promise from the Bible. And this lady gave me a tweezer to pick one promise out of the box. And uh, I read it and they believed that that was God's promise for you at that moment. And she told me that any time of the day if she faced a problem or she was worried, she'd pick a, a promise out of the box. But you know, the, the Bible is a glorious promise box. Have you viewed the Bible like that? God is promising his people what he will do. And there are hundreds of promises in the Old Testament. God promising to send his son. Talking about his person, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension to glory, and his success as he will establish his kingdom. God has made promises which he's going to keep. Children sometimes, certainly I did, played a game of shadows late in the day as the sun goes down. And we would try and get rid of our shadow, try and jump into the shadow, try and jump away from the, the shadow. Shadows are not real, but shadows point to the real person. And in the Old Testament, the shadows are always pointing to the Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now God has given us many shadows and promises and pictures in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. There was an exciting moment early in the ministry of our Lord Jesus. He'd been baptized by John the Baptist. And a day or so later, our Lord was walking along with his disciples. And John the Baptist pointed to him and said, Behold, look. And the word is very strong. Stare, look carefully at him. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ, appointed by the Father, anointed by the Spirit at his baptism, beginning his ministry. He is the Lamb of God who on the cross would take away the sin of the world. Now the sacrifices of a lamb or another animal in the Old Testament scripture take you to the heart of Calvary. They give us a picture of what was happening to our Lord Jesus there. One person has described Old Testament sacrifices like an x-ray picture of the cross. So if you find the Old Testament difficult, looking at the ceremonies and the sacrifices, remember that they are x-ray pictures. They're pointing you to the cross, the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at an x-ray in a hospital or in surgery, 
The doctor points out perhaps a fracture, perhaps some kind of disease or arthritis, whatever it is. You can see what's causing the problem. It gives you an inside picture. And the Old Testament sacrifices are giving us an x-ray there, taking us to the heart of what God was doing when Jesus Christ died on the cross. What are these shadows telling us? Well, one important thing is that you cannot approach God. You cannot worship God. You cannot know God. You dare not face God without a saviour, without a sacrifice, because of our sin. It reminds us that God is holy, pure. He's clean, spotlessly clean. He hates sin with a perfect hatred. He cannot tolerate sin. Now, I've got relatives who hate spiders. And they run a mile. Dad! Or granddad! Spider here! But God hates sin with perfect hatred. Sin and God are opposites. And God is opposed to, to sin. Our holy God is a consuming fire. And to meet God as a sinner, an unbelieving sinner, without Christ, will be disaster. And just as perhaps one can be burnt in a fire, or you touch a live electric wire, and you have a shock, or you could be electrocuted, to be in the presence of a holy, sin-hating God as an unbeliever is a disaster. We are condemned. God is holy. And sin is a problem for us all. My problem, your problem. And because of sin, we're under the, the wrath of God. And we sin in so many ways. We're so proud. We... We want our way. We're selfish. We do wrong things. We, we can be dirty. We can be wicked. And we break God's laws. And God is angry with us. And we're separated from God. We're lost. We're damned. We're hell-bound without a saviour. Sin is always punished. And Calvary tells us that even at the cross, God the Father was punishing his own son, not sparing him, but laying our sin upon him. And so he cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the sacrifices of the Old Testament are pointing in a very real way to our sin to the holy character of God, the danger of meeting God without a saviour, without a sacrifice. And God in his mercy from the earliest times instituted sacrifices for the sin of the people. They were just substitutes. They were shadows. The animals didn't actually bring about forgiveness. They were pointing to Christ. They were signposts. They were pictures of what Christ would do. 
Now that Jesus has died, those animal sacrifices are not needed. It's finished. I wonder if you can visualize the Lord Jesus on the cross this morning. Yes, he's sinless, absolutely pure. If you're allowed to look into his mind and know his thoughts, always clean, always loving, perfect, so different from ourselves, always speaking words of love, yes, those righteous anger, but never sinning, his behavior, his actions, loving, kind, honoring the Father, fulfilling the law of God in our place. Perfect, innocent. No one could point a finger at him and say that he has done wickedly or sinned. And yet, on the cross, he's dying for rebels, enemies, people like ourselves who, who say, no, I don't want you. I'm going my way. I'm not listening to you. I'm rejecting your love. And the one who is equal with the Father, who's been so close to the Father in the bosom of the Father from eternity, loving the Father and the Spirit perfectly, now he cries out in, in anguish, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So he's being punished. He's become our sin bearer. He's become a curse for us. He's become my substitute. And he's dying there because he loves us. He loves enemies. He loves rebels. He loves people who constantly reject him. And the Bible uses many words to describe what he did on the cross. This big word propitiation is used. Simply it means that by his death on the cross, he turns away the wrath, the anger of God toward us. Or he's our Passover. Christ our Passover is sacrificed for us, says Paul. Goes back to Egypt and to the Passover there, the release from Egypt. Passover meal, the lamb was killed, the blood was shed and put on the, the lintels of the door. And with the blood on the lintels of the door, the angel of death at midnight would pass over. Christ, our Passover on the cross, died for us. There's no fear of hell. The angel of death Destructively cannot touch a believer. On the cross, he's reconciling a holy God who's angry with us, who will destroy us if we meet him without Christ. And in our hearts, we are enemies, we're rebels. And on the cross, he is reconciling, bringing sinner and a holy God together. And by the Spirit, when the Spirit comes and gives us a new heart, a new life, we can respond. The cross 
is reconciliation. I can know God. I can be right with God. I can be forgiven. On the cross, he's redeeming me, releasing me from the power of sin and of Satan. He's paying a price, the price of the blood of his own life. And he's bringing me into glory. He's a curse for us. The law which condemns the sinner, that curse has fallen upon the Lord Jesus. And he suffers in our place. And so Paul can say at the end of 2 Corinthians 5, he, the Father, has laid on him who knew no sin, our sin, and that, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the Father actively laying on the Lord Jesus who knew no sin, our sin, our guilt, our punishment. Once a year in the Old Testament, some of you will know that two young goats were used. The first goat was taken by the high priest and taken to the altar, and then its blood was shed, its life was forfeited, and this shadowed our Lord Jesus on the cross, dealing with our guilt and our punishment. The other goat was treated very differently. The high priest placed his hands on the head of the goat as a picture of transferring his own sin and the sin of his people. The goat became a sin bearer, became a curse and was driven far away, miles away, into the wilderness, not to be seen again. That's what happened to Calvary. Yes, the blood of our Lord Jesus was shed, but our sin was driven away as we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the high priest. He offers not an animal, but himself in our place. When we believe upon him, our sins are taken away. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Never to be dug up again by the holy God. Completely forgiven. Past, present and future. Complete pardon. That's what our Lord Jesus did on the cross. You know there's a great cost involved for the Lord Jesus himself. At midday, on that Good Friday, darkness came unexpectedly over the countryside. It expresses something of the spiritual darkness and anguish being experienced on the cross of Calvary. Also, in the darkness, hiding something of the agony and the suffering of the Lord Jesus from the crowd. And during that period of darkness, our Lord Jesus cried out, My God, my God, the cry of David in Psalm 22, Why have you forsaken me? The Lord Jesus was lonely, he felt deserted. He wasn't comforted by the Father. 
My God, why have you forsaken me? There was no comfort there. It seemed as if a veil, a curtain was drawn between the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son. He feels forsaken. It seemed as if heaven closed its doors. No angel came to help the Lord Jesus. After his temptations, an angel came and strengthened him, and on other occasions. But no angelic visitor on this occasion. No voice from heaven, as in the baptism, this is my beloved son, in whom I well please. Heaven was silent. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You come to the the heart of our Lord suffering on the cross. He's become a curse for us. He's taken our place. Our punishment is laid upon him. He's deserted. He's abandoned. It's a sense of the withdrawal of fellowship with the Father. And then he cries out triumphantly, finished, it's done. I've paid the price of sin. I've been punished. Heaven is now open to believing sinners. The price is paid. Punishment of sin has been made. Here's a unique, final, sufficient sacrifice for our sin. And then he committed himself to the Father and died in his human nature and came to the very lowest point in his humiliation as he died and he was then taken to a sepulchre. But look at that cross. Don't take your eyes away from it. We're told in John 3 that God so loved the world. It's the love of the Father giving his Son. He so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. In Romans chapter 8, Paul tells us of the Father, he that spared not his own Son. It's an echo of Abram and Isaac in Genesis. When God tested Abram's faith, asking him to sacrifice his his son Isaac, the son of promise, Abram obeyed. And when they reached the top of the mountain and made the altar, he eventually tied Isaac to the altar, was about to bring the knife down on his own beloved son. And heaven shouted out, Stop! Isaac was spared. But on the cross, the Father's beloved Son was there. There was no shout from heaven, stop. The full expression of divine wrath and anger, the full punishment for our sin was there, laid on the Lord Jesus Christ. He spared not his Son, but delivered him up for us all. No wonder the Apostle John 
in chapter 4, in the first letter, and say to his readers, here is love. Do you want to know what real love is? Do you want to know the greatest expression of, of love in the history of the world? Here it is. Here it is love. Not that we love God. Nothing to do with us. But rather that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's love, says John. No greater expression of it. And are you spurning that love and that only hope of eternal life? But finally, as I close, our Lord is offering mercy and grace through anyone who trusts in him. When the Lord Jesus shouted out this word, finished, he died, but strange events accompanied his death, as you know. Immediately the curtain in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum in the temple, was broken from top to bottom. It was a heavy curtain. It prevented anyone, even priests and Levites, from entering the, the presence of God. There was the ark. There was the overladen with, with gold. And blood was shed on, on the top of that ark. There were the cherubim there. God manifested his presence and gloried there in the Holy of Holies. And no one dare enter the presence of God except the high priest once a year. He said, no admittance. But now there's the end of the temple and the sacrifices. And that veil is broken. Believers can enter the presence of God. They can know God. They can know his forgiveness through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin has been dealt with. There's one mediator. And to mark this unique event, nature marked it by an earthquake. I don't know how extensive the earthquake was, but it shook Jerusalem, the rocks rent. His death was remarkably important. On the third day, of course, the Father, God the Father, raised him from the dead. The resurrection is as important as his death. The Father saying to us, I've accepted his sacrifice. You can be sure that the sacrifice for your sin has been paid. Forgiveness is available. And I've raised my son, the mediator, from the dead. He's conquered death. He's conquered Satan. He's overcome sin. He can guarantee eternal life. He's the living Christ today. Ascended, exalted. And Christians, we can know him and enjoy him. 
If you're a Christian here this morning, let me reassure you that our sins have been laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Provided you trust him, you know him as your saviour, all our sins, past, present and future, have been laid upon him. God has punished them. That's no excuse to, to sin and to be disobedient, to backslide. It's rather a motive to please God and to love him, to give our lives to him. Some Christians carry guilt over many years of things they've done and been. Christians, God has forgiven. He remembers it no more. You shouldn't be in torment because of guilt. The price has been paid on Calvary. Many of you will know the story of Johnny, how at the age of 18, she dived off a cliff and into a pool of water, not knowing there were some dangerous cliffs near the surface of the water. And she dived in, and she hit these rugged rocks. She was immediately paralyzed. And that's been her life story. And she suffered extensively. Some months after the accident, she was in bed at home and feeling full of doubt and fear, though she was a believer. Feeling that God was angry with her and punishing her. And she said to her father, a Christian, Dad, is God punishing me for my sin? And uh, her father was wise. He smiled and said, no, no, no. God only punishes sin once. And he punished our sin as believers on the cross. And he will never, never, never punish sin again. Believers, you are free of guilt in Christ. Our sins have been covered, forgiven. We're free to love Christ and to serve him. Some of you are not Christians. Some online, some listening to the recording. I like the story of an English evangelist, I think at the end of the 19th and early 20th century. He conducted lots of village missions in the southern counties of England. He would go to a village for a week or two weeks, weather permitting, of course. And in one mission, one village, he'd come to the end of his mission and uh, he was beginning to take down the tent which he used for meetings. And as he was kneeling and pulling up the tent stakes from the ground, a young man came to him and said to, uh, to him, what must I do to become a Christian, to be saved? 
The evangelist didn't look up at him, but he, he said, well, you're, you're too late. And the young man was absolutely shattered, shocked by it. A bit angry. What do you mean I'm too late? Do you mean that I can no longer become a Christian because the, the meetings are over? No, no, he, he said. You ask me, what must I do? You can't do anything. You can't improve your life. You can't make yourself right with God. And I tell you that you are 1,900 years too late. Because Christ did all the work for us on the cross. And all you must do is repent and believe. And God will give you that faith, give you repentance. And all you must do is to fall into the hands of the living Saviour. He's done it all. It's finished. And you are invited to trust him and to experience his wonderful love. Amen.